Last week, chapter 13, uh, those verses 8 to 14, was all about how we can live out of love for Jesus together. Now, chapters 14 and 15, and we'll finish this journey through Romans over the next couple of weeks now, is all about overcoming a threat to that same love. And the test is, over the course of these two chapters, that one, we like to look better than others. We like to think we know better than others. And we like to have things our own way. And all those three things will ruin community. Here in Rome, there are two groups. If you notice there that Paul's speaking to one of them this morning in particular, but he mentions both. There's a group that is weak. It's the one that nobody wants to imagine that they're in but some people must be, and the strong. And there's three issues that they're fighting over. You may have noticed as Sally read for us. Do you eat meat or not? Do you observe the festivals or not? And do you drink wine or not? And so chapter 14 that we'll think about this morning will be addressed really to the weak. Paul tells us that right at the beginning. Whilst chapter 15 will focus on the strong, but Paul will really give some very strong and direct words to both groups. And here's the point from this morning that I hope you'll take sort of from it. There's three. Look up to Jesus, not down on others. Don't take yourself too seriously and help. Don't hinder. Firstly, look up to Jesus, not down on others. There are some things in life, right, that are a false economy. That is actually, you know, the savings that you made on not paying for it is not really worth the pain that you caused yourself by the savings. Some things actually paying the full price would have been better in the end. I took a few driving lessons with my mum growing up. And here is an example of a false economy. Because the journeys revealed, and there was only two at most three of them, Uh, revealed our very, very different personalities. As we would come up to a junction 200 yards away from the lights, my mum would start with the begging to break. Break, break, you've got to slow down, you've got to slow down, you've got to slow down. And the commands would just increase in intensity and she's pumping the passenger brake. It wasn't dual controls, just you know when you have an edgy passenger who's sort of there, foot through the floor, and you've got the Flintstones car in the end, you're just sort of running it along. And, you know, weirdly, and I still don't understand why, but my sort of protest that, well, my my instructor says there's no prize for finishing ahead of the line, you know, you finish on the line, didn't seem to sort of settle it down. This is the problem here in Rome. There's no prize for stopping short of the line. But here is where the discussions are. If God's law says that, well, this is the line and you go no further than here, yeah, but how close can I get to that? Do I have to stop before it? Okay, it doesn't say that I can't do that, but should I not do it so that I can stop before the line? There's no prizes for stopping short of the line. Some here, the weaker brothers, sisters, want to stop before the line, but not only want to stop themselves, they want to force everybody else to stop, while the strong are wanting to stop on the line. 
As for the one who's weak in faith, look at verse 1 there with me, welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. Who were this group who were weak? Like I said, nobody really wants to imagine that they're the weak person. Here he starts off with this argument about meat, and there's a very cheap shot there, isn't there? It just seems to be true to life. Why on earth would the strong be the ones avoiding meat? Why on earth would the ones avoiding meat be strong? It's just not possible. Why was it that they felt they couldn't enjoy meat? In Corinth, there are similar issues around meat. You can read about them in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. But the issue is different. It's about idolatry. Because back then in those times, all of the meat that's sold in the marketplace has previously been used in a temple. And so the issue is, well, if I buy some meat from the marketplace, and I know that it's been caught up in some of those rituals beforehand, you know, is that right? Am I somehow participating in that? Here the issue isn't about that, it's slightly different. Here, as we've seen all the way throughout Romans, there's this tension between you have some uh, believers who come from a Jewish background, very religious, very observant of all those laws, and then some who've come from a pagan background and no religious sort of observances at all. And there are some who are tempted to feel, even though we're saved in Jesus, we should still keep those food laws of the Old Testament. And that's their worry. And that's why they don't want to touch any of the meat sold in the marketplace because it's not prepared in a kosher way. So they abstain from anything and everything. It makes sense if that's the case, if these weaker brothers and sisters are those who are tempted to want to still try and keep the Old Testament law because the other two issues are about observing feasts and drinking. Jewish believers tempted to keep extra religious rules. And these are all things that they're not sure of they don't know how that meat's prepared it's more of a suspicion than anything they're things that are not commanded by God and it shows they have a weak conscience and a weak faith and that's how Paul describes them as for the one who's weak in the faith welcome them look at that welcome them but not to quarrel over opinions. Do welcome them. They belong. They belong here before they sort of behave in exactly the same way. They belong before they believe all the same things as you. Welcome them. Do welcome them, but don't welcome them to have pointless debates. And here's a difference for Paul, an important one, that these two chapters are all about secondary matters, opinions, he puts it in the original language. It could be put, things of no consequence, things that don't really, when all said and done, matter, opinions. They're things that are not that important. They're things that are not that clear. And for them here, it's meat, it's drink, it's observing the Old Testament religious festivals, But today it could be many other things. We could chuck a lot of other things on top of that. It could be the kind of movies you do or don't watch, the kind of music you do or don't listen to. Again, whether or not you drink or not, whether you smoke or not, whether you choose to dance or not, whether you sort of believe in gambling or not. Once part of a church that was sort of so intense on that that they they believed you couldn't even be part of a raffle. And... Here's the odd thing with this. You impose a rule so strongly. I've never in my life wanted to do a raffle so much when people were so, had such a problem with raffles. All of a sudden, you know, I wanted to look up on eBay, how do I get the biggest tombola I can find to put on a raffle? 
I've never smoked in my life, but all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'd quite like to go and get Twenty, Lambert and Butler and smoke them one after the other. <laughs> not interested in it, don't think it's a particularly great idea, it's not good for your health. But if you're going to make it such a big thing, you've never made it more appealing. In fact, I used to joke with them, there was a number of them who actually, back in the days, had protested the Sex Pistols coming into town. And oddly, it was after that event that they got famous because people were protesting. I used to joke with them, it was mean. But say, do you, know, do you not now look back and think maybe you should have said nothing? They would have never become anything. But because you made such a big deal, it became this thing. We could chuck any number of things on there, couldn't we? But none of these things are commanded or banned. None of them. They're matters of opinion. They're matters of taste, of preference, of conscience. By contrast, there are some things which are very clearly banned or commanded. We had some of them last week, didn't we? Chapter 13, adultery, theft, murder, coveting. Clearly banned. But this text and the principles Paul gives us can be used in exactly the same way on those. There are some theological things as well. There are opinions they're not that important. They're not that clear how old the earth is. Mode of baptism. The role of spiritual gifts like tongues. The particular form of church government. You can make a coherent case either way. You will choose one that you feel is more compelling. But you cannot make a concrete case on any of them. You can't say the other position is unbiblical because that's not true. It simply doesn't say enough to tell you that. The scriptures are not that clear on it. You have to make a judgment call. There's other things that are very clear. Paul puts it, 1 Corinthians 15, things that are of first importance. Things like God being Trinity. That God creates, that he orders humanity in the world. That God saves us through faith alone in Jesus. That there's a physical resurrection of Jesus and of us. Opinions, secondary matters, what Paul is focused on here, we hold in an open hand. There's no point, really, in much of a debate on them. They don't really matter that much. But primary matters are things that we hold in a closed hand. There's no room for debate on those. There's no room for debate on the Trinity. There is, in fact, one much cleverer person than me, church father, put it, that try to deny the Trinity, you'll lose uh, your faith. Try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. It's this thing that's so hard to really in any way grasp and wrestle with totally, but try to deny it, and you simply aren't a believer. But here, Paul is focused on things that are opinions and that's important because the way that you handle those things is different look at this first issue here verse two the first issue is meat one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables and look what Paul doesn't say here look what he doesn't include there is no reasoning for Paul's argument here he doesn't give an explanation he doesn't feel the need I'm not going to explain to you why he doesn't care it's an opinion he does care about how we resolve it. And look at verse 3, because that's where he moves to. Let not the one who eats despise, and that's the first word just to sort of circle and we'll come back to in a second. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment 
Those are the two important words there. Despising. And the word is literally looking down on. Let not the one who eats, because they have a strong enough faith to do that, look down on the one who doesn't. But also, let the one who abstains not pass judgment on the one who does, as if somehow they are weaker. Neither is to look down on the other. And you know, Paul is like a father. He said this in other places. He says to the Corinthians, you've had countless guides, but not many fathers. I became your father. Fathers have to do the difficult things sometimes. They have to say the difficult things that children don't want to hear, that children don't like hearing, but need to hear. And here he's saying that thing that I have to say so many times, so it gives me some sort of encouragement. I'm not totally alone in the world. Both of you are in the wrong. You both need to stop here. That's the first issue is meat. The second issue is about days. Yeah, one person esteems one day as better than another, verse 5, while another esteems all days alike. Again, the context is whether or not they should keep these Jewish sort of festivals, special fast days, uh, special celebrations, and things like this. Should they continue to keep these Old Testament laws that are about ceremonial and ritual things, largely to do with the temple, which now is redundant, now Jesus has come? Some esteem them as better than others. Others see them all the same. And again, no reasoning from Paul, but straight to how you resolve it. Verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in your own mind. See, convictions are not the problem in and of themselves. It's not wrong to not have convictions. It's not wrong to have convictions. Convictions are good. You spend your whole life sitting on the fence, you'll get splinters in your bum. You need to have convictions. The problem isn't convictions. The problem is what you do with them, how you handle them. But here, Paul says, be fully convinced. And and the word there is, um, it's like wear it fully. Own it. What it is that you're convinced of, that you believe strongly, own it. You may as well. If not, why why think it at all? It's, It's probably not worth thinking if you're really not that sure. Be fully convinced. He's not saying give up your opinions. Be fully convinced of them. And to be convinced, though, you do have to allow your opinions to be scrutinized. You do have to open your opinions to be challenged, to be challenged by facts at times, to be challenged by evidence. Be convinced, though, he says, in your own mind. And that's significant, isn't it? Maybe that's a little phrase just to circle or to underline. In your own mind. It is not your job to convince everybody else of your opinions and your tastes on things that don't really matter, on things that are not really that clear. Paul gave a change of behaviour for them in verse 3. Don't look down on each other. Now in verse 6, it's about a change of mind. Look at verse 6 there. The one who observes a day observes it in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of God. Why you do it is more important than what you do. If you abstain or if you partake, do it to the honour of God, not yourself. We see this in other places, 1 Corinthians 10. Again, they're thinking about similar issues. You could look at other places too, but we'll look at just the one. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, he says, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God.
almost all things in life, if given thanks for to God and done for God's honour, are ways to bring him glory, whether that's food, drink, celebrating, work, rest, sports, whatever, almost anything, not quite everything, but almost anything, can be glorifying to God if done, giving thanks to him. Why you do it is more important than what you do. He says, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. If you can't see eye to eye on the opinion, what he hopes that you'll see eye to eye on is the intent. That either way, you're both seeking to honour God in all of life, and so there's not a need or a right to question one another's integrity. The point for us to take away simply this first nine verses is don't look down on others, but look up to Jesus, our God and Saviour. Look up to Jesus, not down on others, but secondly, don't take yourself too seriously. There's, I think I've put it in here, a little... uh, Shot from a film, this is from Anchorman, this is the character Ron Burgundy, this is him in the midst of a sort of conversation over a cocktail party, who says, someone not aware of who he is, and says, oh, I don't quite know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. And here is some of the problem for some of the Romans, that they really do just believe they're kind of a big deal. Here in this section, there's an interesting thing that goes on, because I don't know whether you ever sort of experienced this in in your daily life, but the emphasis on one word in the same sentence can make a huge difference to the meaning. This is a regular uh, sort of sentence I hear in my daily life. Did you put the bin out last night? Usually I haven't, which is why I hear it a lot. But where the emphasis falls in the sentence can make an awful lot of difference to it. Because if we put the emphasis on the did, uh, I suppose what is being suggested is my ability to perform the task is, is being raised into question, isn't it? Did you actually do it? Did you put the bin out last night? Or if we put the emphasis on the you, the suggestion might be I actually managed to perform the task... But now there's some scepticism as to whether it was really me or maybe the neighbour did it because he felt sorry for me not doing it. Did you put the bin out last night? Or if the emphasis was on bin, perhaps the question might be as to was it really the bin I put out or something else? Labouring the point, but you see what I mean. Where the emphasis falls changes the meaning, doesn't it? And in this section, everything turns on the word you. Because that is where the emphasis is falling. In each of the sentences, in verse 4 and through verse 10 and 12, the very first word in the sentence and the emphasis is on you. And that changes the meaning really significantly. Paul says here, verse 4, look there with me. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master he stands or falls. I don't know about you, but where I grew up, a sort of beginning of a sentence like that, who, who are you, who do you think you are, that's the beginning of a fight. Uh, and that's the moment in the pub, you just, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm off now. I don't want to be caught up in this. 
And here, this is direct, this is confrontational. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master he stands or falls. The contrast here is between you and Jesus. Who are you to do this? And we are so, so prone to doing this, of falling into a place of thinking it's our place to judge and to critique others. We do it, it's seen right throughout culture. You see it in different layers and elements and cross-sections of society. You see it in football phone-ins. I'm quite a sad person and quite a nasty person. I quite enjoy hearing people's sort of suffering and pain. And one of the ways I do that is listening to football phone-ins on a Sunday evening where you hear grown men having emotional meltdowns about what's happened the day before. And I just sort of enjoy it. Um, And that tells you something sort of deeply troubling about me. But there you go. Some weeks it's me who's calling, but there you go. There's something about that, isn't there? Here are men calling from their vans, eating a bacon sandwich, never done a 10K in their life, and they're calling up and saying, hey, this is what the coach should be doing. This player isn't doing enough. I know better. Here's what he should be doing. If you're not into sports, this happens everywhere else. I've stopped watching it because it's got more annoying than a football phone-in. But question time is the same. It's just doing it with politicians. And it, the exact same thing, that you have people in the audience just having a complete meltdown about something. They're not listening to any of the responses. Nobody is. But they think that they could do it better, and they could almost certainly not do it better. Or, if you're even more cultured and you don't sort of really do... TV, you don't do telephone phone-ins. Maybe you're the type who wants to write into points of view to complain about the TV programme that you sat and watched. That if you didn't like, you could switch off. You didn't have to watch it. But then, you not only displayed, you had the time to watch the programme you didn't like, you had the time to get the typewriter out and write the letter about it. Oh my goodness, to have that much free time. What a life you're living. We see it right through everywhere, don't we? We, we are tempted to think we maybe know better. Your calling isn't to play armchair critic. It's not to be part-time consultant. He will be upheld, Paul says, verse 4, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And there's the hope. The hope is that Jesus can hold us up even when we're weak and even where we're weak. The good news is that Jesus doesn't really care. He's not really as concerned over opinions that the weak may take way too seriously here. Verse 4 and verse 10 are very similar if you cast your eyes down there to them. In verse 4, he's saying, don't do this. And in verse 10, he's sort of saying, why do you do it? It's not just theory for Paul here. This is really happening amongst them, and this is partly why he's writing about it. It's not just a worry that he thinks it may happen. It's like it is happening amongst you. You, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? And again, in the original language, it starts with you, and the focus is you. You, why do you pass judgment on your brother? You, why do you despise your brother, it's not your place. It's not your job. So why do we do it? It's because we're tempted to take ourselves too seriously, isn't it? We wouldn't like to say it. We don't like to admit it. We'd never put it in those terms. But sometimes we do take ourselves too seriously. In Corinth, here's an example. First Corinthians chapter 6. They're suing each other. 
They're sat next to each other on a Sunday. And through the week, they're suing each other in the courts. And wrong is done. But rather than resolve it and deal with it and forgiving, they go into court. And so Paul's answer isn't just don't do it. It is partly don't do that. But it's wouldn't you rather be wronged? Why do you feel the need that you have to come out on top? You're taking them to court because you've lost out and you want to make sure you win. Wouldn't you rather lose if there had to be a loser? Wouldn't you rather your brother or your sister did come off the better end of things? But here's Paul's reasoning that he finishes with. He gives a list of sins of which they've all committed. Heinous things. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You wronged God, he says to those taken out lawsuits, who is much, much more important than you, and you wronged him in much worse ways, but God forgave you. How can you now not forgive those who wrong you? Though you are much less important, and what they have done is much lesser than what you've done. If you can't manage to forgive, it is because you are acting like you are more important than God. And so Paul's call is, don't take yourself too seriously. Therefore, if someone handles and holds an opinion differently... So what? Does your verdict matter that much? Do you need to have the last word? No. No. For we will all stand, he tells us, before the judgment seat of God. And there's the contrast continuing throughout these verses between you and God. It's not our job to judge others. It's God's job. And we'll all face that. And here, I hope that comes across right, that's not a threat. The judgment of God here isn't a threat, it's a relief. Because God is a better judge than us. He's much kinder, he's much fairer, he's impartial in ways that we're not. It's a good thing here. We'll all stand before God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So look up to Jesus, your actual judge, your actual saviour, not down on others, as if you're their judge and saviour. So then, verse 12, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Focus on the case you have to answer to God, not others to you. And again, that here isn't a threat. That's good news. You need a good lawyer to answer this case. But you have one. John puts it in his letter. We have an advocate before the Father. Jesus. And the word literally is lawyer. If one who pleads your case. Don't take yourself too seriously. Your opinions just aren't that important. Look up to Jesus, not down on others. Don't take yourself too seriously. And lastly, help, don't hinder. I wonder if you know something of this in your own life too, that you can be wrong in being right. One of the ways I think you probably see this better than any other is in marriage. 
Winning an argument sometimes isn't a win. If getting your way on an opinion leaves you not talking or not happy. Getting your way will be hollow if you're sat alone on the sofa afterwards. Being correct is empty if it ruins your intimacy. Winning a discussion on the colour of paint, the movie choice, the dinner, holiday, job, whatever else it is you argue about, isn't winning if it comes at the cost of being one flesh together. You'll never see as unhappy a couple as one where either one or both feel being right is more important than the relationship. You can be wrong in being right. And Paul's point here is the relationship with each other as God's family is more important than the feeling of being right in your own head at least. And he says it here, he has a negative and a positive there in verse 13. Firstly, there's a negative. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. There's something to stop doing, a negative. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. There's something to drop, a destructive behavior. But there's a positive as well. There's something to take up. Don't pass judgment, but decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. And the two words there, stumbling block and hindrance, again, it's that thing of language of translating it. You know, in the original, it's like the trap and the bait. It doesn't make so much sense in English, stumbling block, hindrance. But it's trap and bait. Don't, don't set the bait out for the brother or sister to get caught in. Don't do that. Don't do that. Decide never to do that. Take up a new concern for each other. In verses 14 to 15 here, we see there's different perspectives to that. We need to recognize that on opinions, people have different perspectives. We see things differently. Look at verse 14 there. I know, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. What is Paul saying? He's not saying that both sides are right. That's not possible. And that's a very modern, progressive sort of way of trying to deal with things. Both sides are right. No, that's not true. <laughs> everything is clean. What, what he's saying is, I'm persuaded and I know everything's clean for us. But for the one who sees it differently, that's the way they see it. He's not saying that they're right, but he's saying that is the way they see it. For them, it's not. And you need to know that. If a brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy one for whom Christ died. If it's not a clear issue, and here it's not, we can see it differently. So don't, just for the sake of that opinion, in your actions, ruin a relationship. We have different perspectives. But Paul encourages us here, verse 16 to 18, to defend principles we believe strongly. See, welcoming a brother and sister doesn't mean you can't defend your opinion from attack. He said at the very beginning there, welcome the one who's weak in the faith, but not to quarrel over opinions. And here's a similar thing. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And the word is, is, is like blasphemy. Something that actually is good be distorted and put out as bad. Don't let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. See, offering a seat to the weak, a place at the table, 
is not the same as having to offer them the driver's seat. Just because they feel that, no matter how strongly even, does not mean they're right and does not mean we have to pretend that they're right. And here's the problem, because sometimes the weak are actually the loudest, the most extreme. I don't know if you notice in some of the language there that they're going to the point of talking about things being good, evil, not just right, not just, you know, taste preference, I like that, I don't like that. It's good, evil, jumping very far to extremes. But also sometimes the weak are the most demanding people. And again, think of that idea of parenting, of fatherhood, and that Paul uses so often with the churches he writes to. With kids, we sometimes have those moments where we have to say, I know you don't like it, I know you don't agree, but this is happening. The kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there's the problem that actually it can get to a point that the gospel is distorted, isn't it? When really it's about righteousness before God, given by God, that brings us peace with God and that brings true and lasting joy in Christ to us. The kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Serving in this way actually brings God's acceptance and eventually approval by people too. There's different perspectives. We're called to defend principles still, but we're to seek peace. Look at verse 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's looking beyond selfishness of having to sort of look right before others or having to look better than others to what builds us all up. And then lastly, he thinks about keeping faith. Verses 20 to 23. Whatever you do, or don't do, you should do it out of faith. Don't, for the sake of food, verse 20 tells us, destroy the work of God. God's work is more important than food or whatever secondary matter or opinion it is you want to replace in there. Don't, for the sake of that, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong to make another stumble. It's good not to eat meat, not to drink wine, not to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Don't be wrong in being right. Think of their feelings. There might be some occasions around some people you think, do you know, I have this freedom, but maybe I just won't exercise it around them for their sake. I just might not exercise it tonight. I don't have to every time flex that freedom have that freedom there but I don't always have to use it the relationship matters more than your freedom matters more than being right the faith you have Paul tells us keep between yourself and God what does he mean by that I'm gonna draft in some help from a commentator here this is Douglas Moo's excellent commentary on Romans it's ginormous. I use it to sort of weigh down my house. He says this. The silence that Paul requires is related to the need to avoid putting a stumbling block in the way of the weak. This will mean that the strong are not to brag about their convictions before the weak. And especially that they are not to propagandize, try to force everybody else 
to believe what they believe and tell everybody else that everybody else is wrong. Your faith, keep between yourself and God. I think the point is don't make a hobby horse of your opinions on secondary matters, on things that don't really matter that much. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating isn't from faith. Paul concludes, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And those two sentences make sense when they're read together, that blessed is the one who doesn't have a reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating isn't from faith. And do you see what he's saying there? That the point is, you'll be happy if you're not living conflicted. You're not doing something that you're not actually sure you really should be. Either way, act out of faith, whether that's abstaining or partaking. See, building a relationship is more important than being right. And so Paul says, do all you can to help each other, not hinder. One of the things Paul has contrasted for us here is the work of God and the behavior of the Roman Christians here, which is not always uh, perfect, just as it is for us too, isn't it? But God's work has been to bring together a family from different places, different cultures, different backgrounds, different stories. And Jesus spends himself and gives up his life because he loves us all so much. We're all sons and daughters, but also siblings. And our need is to look to Jesus. The tendency is that we add rules in because we feel that then we sort of are a bit more confident sort of that we're safe because we have a little bit of control. Whether that's about what I do, having right theology as far as we see it, or being in the right denomination of church, whatever that may be, that somehow that adds that bit of security to me that, well, now I feel that much more certain that I'm really right and really safe. But look at how Paul puts it here in Colossians. This is Colossians 2 and into chapter 3. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, and Paul says elsewhere that for those of us putting our faith and trust in Jesus, that we united with Jesus in his death, that our old life has, has indeed died just as Jesus did, why then... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that will perish as they're used, according to human precepts and traditions. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I said to you before that the way I understand that is... I really like eating pasties. They're not good for you. You can put all the rules you like in place about not eating them, but unless I actually stop loving them so much, I don't have a hope to sort of eat less of them, do I? Something needs to change internally. It's not good enough to just put an external rule in. If then, and here's the hope, you've been raised with Christ, as you have as believers, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The good news is that Jesus has saved us and will save us. And we're not saved on our ability to manage our behaviour or to be right all the time. That is good news. That is a relief because none of us ever will be. So, look up to Jesus, not down on others. Don't take yourself too seriously and help. Don't hinder. Let's pray and then we'll uh, sing a closing song together.